Hello and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, contributing editor at Asset Allocator, and joining me today are Dan James, head of asset management at Charles Stanley, and Dave Baxter, funds editor at Investors Chronicle. Today, we are looking at the topic of portfolio construction in inflationary times. Dan, thank you for joining me today. One of the challenges, certainly from 2022's bout of inflation, was that the traditional inverse correlation between bonds and equities broke down. When putting portfolios together in that sort of environment, how do you think about diversification? Well, thank you very much for having me and uh, a great question to start with. I think that what one needs to be conscious of is the different component parts of fixed income when you're thinking about your overall overarching portfolio. And I think that maybe um, a lot of people just focus on the duration component. Um, But fixed income is a lot more than just purely duration. Clearly, duration was the thing that uh, hurt everybody last year. But there are many component parts to fixed income, such as inflation. And I think that when you're looking to build portfolios through those challenging times, um, you need to think about adding inflation, but being cautious of the duration component that is often embedded with buying inflation-linked securities. Um, And so therefore, perhaps adding your inflation positioning at the front end of the curve so as to take away any duration notion. In addition to that, obviously, as as we move through that times, one of the things we were thinking about was rotating into things like short-dated credit. So again, not taking on huge amounts of duration, but picking up some of that attractive spread component that uh, that credit affords you um, in the investment-grade arena. And obviously, we can talk about subsequently um, what we've been doing, but uh, we were thinking or are adding to our high-yield positioning um, as we move through the current phase. There are other components. Obviously, you've got curve, the shape of the curve, and I know a lot of people are talking about curve steepness. And uh, obviously, currency is another element um, and something to be very conscious of now but obviously previously that dollar strength um, made it okay in, in, in portfolios to own dollar assets on an unhedged basis if you're a sterling investor. Um, but obviously I would caution that at this point in the cycle and be very much aware of any cable positions that you are running because they could far outweigh the returns that you get uh, on the underlying component, be that inflation or credit. Thank you. David Baxter, how, how have you been... Uh been observing this in in your writings with Investors Chronicle and your communications in the in the industry portfolio construction in in uncertain times. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, it's been very topical, hasn't it? That kind of reminder of the uh, duration risk that that does exist that some people have been worried about for a long time. I suppose what's kind of interesting is just the, as Dan mentioned, the, the kind of different forms of risk you get with your different bond subsectors. And I suppose it's interesting that you say, I suppose you're among those allocators getting more interested again in kind of areas like high yield. But um, yeah, I was wondering how how worried are you about kind of the, I suppose, the default risk? Because there are concerns that that might pick up, uh, especially if we do sort of move into a kind of recessionary scenario. Yeah, definitely. I think that... Um... That's obviously something that you, you you've always got to be conscious of. But if we you know, as we take high yield as an example, I think you're getting yields of somewhere around ten to twelve percent, 
approximately. Mm. I think one does have to be very careful and conscious in high yield in that the lower quality end of the spectrum can, obviously you will you will see higher defaults there. I think if you have an up in quality bias right here, right now, that feels fairly comfortable. And I think at those sort of yield levels of 10 to 12%, you've got very attractive break-evens. I, I would argue one of the things that we do need to be conscious of is that in this environment where you know that sort of punch bowl of easy money has now been taken away, we're very much, well, we need to be much more conscious of the fact that the returns that we can expect from portfolios will be lower than those sort of double-digit returns that perhaps people have become somewhat accustomed to. And I think you know, with that in mind, that break-even on high yield does look relatively attractive. Yes, I would agree that default rates are relatively low, but I think that what that price is implying in terms of the expected levels of defaults is probably somewhat overdone. And therefore, that's why we start to think it's quite attractive. However, I would caution that uh, you know, we are adding those positions by using active managers, because I think it's very important that when you're playing in that space, that you do have an active manager to provide the asset allocation, or sorry, the security selection that, uh, that you need. Thanks for that both. And uh, Dan, one of the, one of the outcomes of the higher inflation is is obviously that that uh, we we end up in a world with with higher interest rates there's still constant and continuous debate and people reading the i don't know the body language at this point of uh, central bankers to try to understand what they're <laughs> going to do if they ate chicken for dinner that scene is either dovish or hawkish but uh, how do you prepare for portfolios in that sort of world where maybe you know the direction of monetary policy is is tighter but you don't necessarily know the you know the pace of the tightening or the extent of it or what the terminal rate is yeah and no, i think it's a good analogy with chicken it seems that the the market to be fair has uh, has been playing chicken with the fed and if you look at the implied rates you know you, you can see that uh, every time uh, the fed does something the market is really pushing hard to have those uh, expectations of you know, hitting that sort of terminal point in rates or, if anything, seeing rates decline further towards the back end of the year. And I think that the central bankers are obviously um, holding fast at this point. That having been said, the, the actions that we saw over the last little while with the stresses coming through in the banking sector um, perhaps gave the market a little bit of the edge and, and the, the central bankers a little bit more full food for thought. What, what does that mean in terms of portfolios? Well, I think that you know, we, we've been very fortunate in not having a, a lot of duration in our portfolio, so we have been adding some duration back in um, because it's, you know, bonds are back, um, yields are back up, um, and they provide a very nice balance to portfolios, particularly if you get into that environment where perhaps, you know, the central bankers do overcook it. Um, and we do, rather than have that sort of dip your toes in the water type recession, we have a, a full dunking and an immersion of the markets in that situation. Those bond positions will help us. Um, I think it's really important to build portfolios in this environment and any environment that, that are conscious of. You know, we, we think about our central scenario, which is kind of, you know, that's, this is what we believe in. But we're conscious that we're not always going to be right. And there will be times when we're wrong. So we, we do look at the bear case scenarios and we try and build some risk profile into our portfolios that will pay out in that environment. Likewise, you know, if we're wrong on the upside, um, we try and capture some things in our portfolio that will help us if we're wrong about the central scenario, but it, the market is perhaps more bullish than we thought. Um, so I think it's very important to, to do that. And that really is all about risk-adjusted returns. And I think if we look at, at the market as a whole, 
it, the, the risk profile is extremely different to what it was even a year, year and a half ago, particularly in the equity market as well, but also in bonds. You know, bonds were more risky last year than equities. Um, but I think that uh, if you think about the risk of adjusted returns, then you're going to get the right outcomes in your portfolios. And if you if you select your asset allocation on that basis, um, I think you, you end up with a good balance um, and, and hopefully an environment that if you are wrong, and we're not always going to be right, uh, you don't get carried out. And that's the important thing. You want to be on the pitch playing. Otherwise, you're not able to score any goals. Well, thank you. David Baxter, I'm sure interest rates have been on the minds of your readers for many years now but uh how have you been have you been been thinking about that that question yeah i, I think um just what sort of dan mentioned about bonds is very pertinent you know they are now the really interesting thing i suppose of the last year is just that bonds can sort of compete for space in portfolios again and that's whether it's you know whether you're kind of an income investor and you're looking at those yields that have come back or whether you're just you know thinking about kind of ballast or even kind of returns. So I suppose, yeah, to me, it's quite interesting to think about um, how they compete for space versus things like the kind of alternative assets that we've seen become so popular in in recent years. And I suppose also rate rises have delivered a bit of a Hmm. shock on that front as well and affected discount rates. And maybe some of the assets that were deemed to be pretty much bulletproof are a bit more vulnerable than, than people realised. Yeah, I think, uh, David, that's a great point you make there in that, um, you know, some of those, I guess, asset classes that perhaps people bought for the illiquidity premium. The interesting thing is a lot of them have a duration component to them. Um, and, and that is one of the driving factors behind the, 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 as you say, the sensitivity they have towards towards interest rates. We do think that, um, you know, as we, as we move into recovery phases, a lot of the investment is going to be in sort of green-led elements. And therefore, some of those infrastructure positions do look attractive now at those discount rates that you're talking about. But I think the, the, the important thing is to remember that that implied duration component that was in there. And things like, and I, know I keep banging on about high yield, but um, actually, I, I genuinely believe it's it's uh, we, we've been swapping some of the equity risk premium portfolios for high yield, um, really because it has a bit of an option on on the equity market and um, because of that higher coupon rate that you receive so it's a, it's an interesting play on that that risk asset class so i think you need to think about that in your portfolio thank you dan as we were we were saying before we before we started recording um it seemed like we had many years where, where nothing much happened in markets they sort of drifted up a bit and we looked for things to worry about and then over the past Two or three years, I suppose, lots of things have happened one, one, one after another. But what lessons can investors take from, say, the past 18 months that yeah. will be useful in the, in the years to come? No, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great point. And um, I think many people, pretty much over the last 10 years or so, you could have bought anything and it would have gone up at some point. But I think you're right now, we're in a much, much more challenging environment and you know, volatility is back. But as I said, with that punch bowl having been received, actually you know, normal service is being resumed in markets and, and one has to be very conscious of that. So we do need to cast our minds back to probably five to ten years ago um, and, and be very conscious of that. Um, for me, that the, the risk-adjusted returns is the single most important thing that we need to look at and be very conscious of. There's also you know, there's a cost of, of switching. So you, we don't feel that uh, we can move our portfolios around that much 
um, because there is an implied cost of, of transacting. Um, and we have to be aware of that. And so what the, the economics of a proposed transaction or investment view are always measured against the cost of execution um, because there's no point in having the view that's going to make you, I don't know, half a percent, one percent, if the costs are one percent. So we, we need to be very conscious of those things. And I think, as I said earlier, the, the important thing is the realisation that returns going forward are going to be lower than those sort of double-digit type returns that we've been used to. Um, I think six or seven percent type returns are, are, are really quite attractive in this environment um, going forward. So that for me is a big lesson: is you know, make, right-sizing uh, one's realization of investment outcomes. I think will help you deliver the right risk-adjusted portfolio to 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 deliver to those returns. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have to have an entire portfolio that's at the very risky end of the spectrum to meet your your or have a chance of meeting your return expectations. Thank you. David, I know you've covering markets on for many a long year. Uh, what have you taken from the past 18 months that will inform your, your writing in future? Yeah, it's, it's just interesting again. Yeah, the, I suppose the kind of new, potentially new regime that we, we've entered. And um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting on, on Dan's point to see whether we do, I don't know whether there is kind of an end of the almost easy sort of buy the dip when, when markets look a little bit stressed and then just sort of continue on and, and make some money whether that kind of ceases to work does that then yeah perhaps you then see much greater sort of disparity in terms of returns and um, when it comes to portfolios and people do feel maybe they need to be more kind of tactical but then you kind of yeah you just see some much greater differences in how portfolios fare and i suppose another thing to watch is just whether how that affects the kind of active passive um, mix you know of course we see allocators using a bit of both in, in different places and perhaps in some markets like the us a bit more passive but um maybe it will kind of change the um the dynamic on on that front how do you think about it? i mean it would have been easy in the in the sort of qe era just to buy those passives because everything went up anyway yep. lots of the people i talk to now tell me it's a stock picker's market, but then they are professional stock pickers, so they would say that. Then. <laughs> uh, but you know, you can do you can do either one at Charles Stanley, yes. presumably. So, how, are you moving more towards the uh, the, the active um, in in the current conditions? Yeah, I think it's, it's, the active passive debate is one that's going to rage forever and a day. I think, but um, I think it's really important when, you know, to your point, David, when when markets are clearly moving in a singular direction then then you want to own the beta and therefore you would buy a passive vehicle to implement that um, i mean we're adamant about having active asset allocation but you can then as you say either implement it passively or actively mm-hmm. so i think you know, going back to the high yield example we we do implement that where we're playing in that higher risk element and and the place where typically we don't have that embedded expertise within charles stanley we'll outsource that to a third-party manager um, and look for them to be that stock picker. Um, so we would, and we do allocate to, to a couple of high yield managers to help us build those positions. Same with emerging markets. You know, that's not something that, uh, well, A, to be clear, that's not something I'm advocating right here, right now. Sure. Um, I think there are challenges there. But um, you know, when you when that time comes right for that, I do think that it's worth picking some very good third-party managers that have got the skill sets, that have got the exposures, that have got the knowledge um, and people on the ground, more importantly, in the relevant areas to help you make the right decisions. But I think one also has to be very conscious, especially now with the likes of consumer duty, of the the overarching cost 
sure. to the consumer. So we've got to be very careful about how we spend that OCF budget in terms of deploying it towards an active manager versus a cheaper solution, which would be passive. And I think that's going to be a big challenge for the industry because we are moving into environments where you probably would, you know, we, we, we are looking to slightly increase that spend on third-party managers where we've got that expertise for stock selection over just owning pure generic beta. But the passive market has grown dramatically over the last little while and gives you a lot more opportunity to express specific type views. But I think, you know, one thing when you, you know, we get into things like thematics, um, if you're talking about, um, I don't know, some digital uh, type thematics or some of the, the greener elements, mm-hmm. there are ETFs out there, but I think one has to be very careful around liquidity, et cetera. So we might then select a manager to help us implement that pure strategy and not get caught up in owning the beta associated to it as well. Thank you. And on David's other point was around um, the greater disparity in, in portfolios. One of the things that happened in 2022 was the uh, the cautious portfolios quite often did less well than the aggressive portfolios because they had a higher fixed income allocation. Yes. Um, I mean, does normal now mean that we get a more normal scenario of, uh, you know, a higher risk portfolios delivering higher returns some of the time and worse returns some of the time and cautious doing the opposite of that. Yeah, the, yes, you should have that. I think I think last year was a you know was a real surprise to many people and I think the biggest problem was that the low risk portfolios as you say were typically invested in fixed income portf- uh, product. Mm-hmm. Um and and those that had a passive allocation would have just bought the gilt market and you know sure. unfortunately the gilt market at that point had 15 years of duration. So sure. if you put rates up 2%, that's 30% of your capital gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a a big learning lesson to many, I'm sure. I know many people I've spoken to sort of were somewhat taken aback and surprised by that move. Mm-hmm. But I think if you actively manage that low-risk bond-type positions across those different elements like credit and, and maybe having some inflation linked but without the duration component in it, so limiting your duration exposure, diversifying your risk across the different fixed income categories, you would have had a much better outcome. Um, albeit it was still very challenging um, as rates moved very quickly in a very short space of time and a very long way on a relative basis, something that I'm sure many people have never seen. Um, sure. With the benefits of being somewhat older, um, I've had the privilege of seeing some of that. But uh, I think it... Um, is that going to happen again in the next little while? Probably not, no. I think that uh, you know, we're in a normal, more normal environment for rates. That's obviously caveat some um, existential threat happening to the markets. But uh, it, it does seem that we're in a, a normalised environment and you know, normal service will resume, as we discussed earlier. Thank you. Um, and look, I'm sure at Charles Stanley, as at every firm, uh, you have some clients who have uh, income or as a priority or who are in or approaching uh, decumulation. They had a, a very awkward time in the in the QE era because sure the capital value of the portfolios went up but nothing really yielded anything. Yes. And then last year it was the other way around. The capital value went down but there was lots of big yields out there if you wanted them. But overlaying that was you had much higher inflation and you know a client who's actually in drawdown wants uh, you know a r- spending power so it's the real value of income that matters but so how can investors or clients who have income as a priority navigate the current market conditions no it's i, I think they're in a, a much more fortunate position than perhaps they were a little while ago as you mentioned but i think the a few interesting things the 
as we said earlier, the bonds are back, yields are back, and cash rates are, are back. So people are actually earning income on their cash, which makes a big difference in a portfolio. How does one deploy that? Well, I think that uh, it depends on their level of income. And one of the interesting things, if you look at all the financial planning activity that goes on, the cash flow analysis that a typical financial planner should do for you um, manifests itself in a sort of um, a cash flow requirement, which is effectively an inflation plus or an outcome orientated return. That is well served by things like income. And obviously that, that plan combined with a level of income will, will lend you to having perhaps more um, exposure on the bond side. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, in, if you can get even investment grade bonds at sort of 6 to 7%, that's attractive. Add in a bit of high yield into that. And even you know, normal, normal bonds, as I say, so notion, nominal bonds, probably yielding, what, 3 3.5%, somewhere around there. Um, the curve's fairly flat. Um, we we would advocate taking on a little bit of duration here. We have been doing it more in the US than in the UK, obviously conscious of that cable trade as well, so hedging it back to sterling. But I think that you know, if anything is going to happen in the next little while, there's pressure on front-end rates. Um, so you could probably see uh, some of that decline. So you want to build in some embedded yield into the portfolios to provide some of that uh, that income going forward. But I think a diversified portfolio across the bond complex will deliver most people the, the income requirements that they're looking for. Thank you. And uh, David, I'm, I'm sure many readers at uh, Investors uh, Chronicle are at the uh, stage of their, their lives where they're thinking about uh, income and, and decumulation. Is that mm-hmm. something that in your, in your, uh, in your, your column and, and in your articles that you've been, been focusing on? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that um, clearly is very important, very popular, um, and we um, there's there's I think a lot to kind of unpick there. Um, as we mentioned, kind of bonds have perhaps just resumed their role um, in that sense. Although I guess I guess another interesting thing to consider is you know when we look at a lot of sort of income portfolios, you do have equity income seems to still be quite a, a mainstay, and I suppose. There's been the interesting um, dynamic in, in the last year where kind of generally, div- I mean, it's quite a generalization, but, you know, dividend paying stocks have kind of held up relatively well. And if people are still worrying about things like inflation and pricing power, um, that has still kind of works quite well as part of your your portfolio. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that mix shifts in, in terms of just how much more people perhaps have kind of jumped into these big yields on the bond fronts, but also how much they kind of mix it up with equities and some of those kind of other assets that we we mentioned before. Thank you. I mean, Dan, I guess the challenge was that uh, uh, in terms of that equity allocation, there was a long period where the equities that went up were the ones that didn't really have a yield. So you, you kind of... And it must have been a challenge for portfolio constructors because they're well. I'll I'll buy the thing with the four percent yield, but then I'll massively underperform because the U.S. tech stocks yep. will will outperform. And then they have to explain to their client, and their client says, well, "Why don't you want Tesla?" Because it doesn't yield anything. <laughs> well, yeah, but my portfolio would be higher if if that happened, you know. So is, is that are we now in a position where, you know, you can buy a stock that can, you know, go up in capital terms and also pay an income? <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, as David said, the, the better dividend-yielding stocks um, are, are probably the higher-quality stocks. I think, you know, now and going forward, we're going to have to be much more conscious of the sectors um, in which you play. But I think having a balanced portfolio, um, and when I say that, I don't mean the old 60-40 yeah, thing, sure. but, but a, 
balanced portfolio that's aware of the risk-adjusted return. So what risk am I taking for the return that I'm getting? Mm -hmm. um, but I also think we do need to think a bit more about total return mm -hmm. in, in the way that we look at uh, look at investments. Um, and that, I think, will help over the longer term, particularly where you're trying to meet those objectives um, that are typically longer-term objectives, um, but they will have a capital component to them and uh, an income component. Um, and you can mix the two. Um, but I think that's something that, that, that a lot of people are quite uncomfortable with. I mean, is there a greater kind of requirement or, or need to mix the two because people spend longer in, in retirement now and maybe, you know, when, when portfolios are constructed 30 years ago, the yeah. assumption was someone would be in the accumulation for perhaps 10 years, but now it could be 30 years and therefore, the, you know, there has to be more growth in there. Yeah, I mean, certainly, the, 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 it's um, it's decumulation is really the inverse of accumulation, sure. the, the the classic pension fund structure that you saw previously, and I think you know you're right. You know, life expectations are growing, or longevity is increasing, and therefore, um, the the need for income changes, and it dynamically changes as you as you um, get older. I mean, I'm not a financial planner, but uh, um, they will be able to tell you a lot lot better than I will. Our job as a manufacturer is just to deliver those outcomes that the, mm -hmm. the planners are, are, are prescribing. But yes, I think it, it's um, it's something that we all need to be aware of. Now, one of the issues, the other issue is that given that interest rates have risen, you know, the hurdle rates to go into some of those less liquid instruments are much higher now. Um, I've been asked that question several times over the last little while. Um, and I think that you know, as, a, as, a, as a private client investor, by the time you sort of you get to the the, the actual return. There, there have been a lot of fees taken out along the way, and actually the returns are not attractive or as attractive as perhaps you first expected them to be. Sure. And the other problem is that you know the higher quality assets, everybody's chasing that same asset pool, and therefore the price of those goes up, and the the, you know, the, the spread in terms of that illiquid premium goes down. So it's challenging from a, from an inclusion perspective in a portfolio. Thanks for that, Dan, and thank you for joining me today. Dan James, Head of Asset Management at Charles Stanley, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle. And thanks to all of you for listening. Do remember to tune in to the next edition of the Asset Allocator podcast. Goodbye.